Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, tonight we want to begin a new class, and this class is called uh, the Apprenticeship Series. This is the fourth, 401. And I know that not everyone's been able to take every class, although, Sylvia, you have. Uh, the 401 kind of built these classes on the idea of college careers, you know, four levels of learning. The 101 class is built on the fa- what are the foundations of the faith, the history of the church, the basic doctrines of the church. The 201 class, then, is, is how do I get into the Bible? What is the Bible? Where did it come from? How do I learn to read the scriptures for all they're worth? And, and that idea. Then at the 301 level, we talked about prayer. The class was called Unlocking the Mystery of Prayer. I didn't get all of them recorded, although I did get the prayer class all recorded. I, I When I go back around again, I'll try and record the 101s and 201s. But So we're going to record this, the 401 class. Uh, they all are varying lengths of classes. Uh, the introductory, the 101 is kind of an introductory membership type class. But this one, I want to go in depth. We call this the apprenticeship series. We're learning to become Christ-like, apprentices of Jesus Christ. I love the word apprentice. I really began to be moved by that word when uh, I became familiar with Friends University using that word for their their. Uh, degree program called Christian Spiritual Formation, and they called it the Apprenticeship Institute. Because an apprentice is more than a student. A student can sit in a classroom like this and learn, but an apprentice does what? Doing. Gets out and does. That's right. You learn by doing. And that's going to become really important in this 401. So we, we learn by doing in the prayer class. We want to learn by doing in the, in, in all of the classes. Uh, so in this one, I've kind of called it the Spirit-Filled Life, Discovering Life in the Spirit through the Book of Acts. So, um, Corbin, there's actually some notes back there if you want to take some notes. Uh, I do have some pens here. I got a pen. You got a pen? Okay, yeah. great. So the idea here is that we're going to use as our basic text for this class the Book of Acts. Not that we're going to go word by word, chapter by chapter, but we're going to look at sections of the book, and what we're going to compare is how did the first Christians, which we find in the book of Acts, the early church, how did their faith develop as a spirit-filled faith? We're going to ask questions like, why was it so important that they be spirit-filled? What does it mean that they were spirit-filled? What effect did that have on the church? What effect did it have on the world? And how do we relate to that in the 21st century? It's one of my, I guess I shouldn't say uh, dogmatic things, but it, it is one of my sincere beliefs that the church of the 21st century is in desperate need of rediscovering what it means to be Christ-like and to be Spirit-filled. So, I really believe that. I think in every generation that has to be rediscovered, 
but it's des we're desperate to rediscover it in this generation. Some generations have done a better job of handing it off to the next generation. I think the reason it's so desperate now is because we've missed a whole generation of teaching on what it means to be spirit-filled. There's some theological terms we'll throw around eventually called sanctification and things like that, but, but I want to look at this as a practical class, not a theological class. I want to look at the, I want to look at the actual functioning of the church in the book of Acts and of those early Christians and ask the, the really hard questions. What's happening to them? What change is it making in their life? And what change is it making in the world around them? And I think when we look at that, we'll find answers to what the church in the 21st century needs. So if you look on your notes tonight, you'll kind of get a feel for where we're going to go. I want to begin by thinking of a couple of scriptures, okay? A couple of scriptures that are just, just really, I think, foundational. One of them is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew 5, verse 8 says, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I want you to I want to compare that verse. That's, that's Jesus Christ talking in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to compare that, if you will, with the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, there is an oft-quoted verse that I find quite interesting. And, let's see if I can find it. I believe it's in verse 14. It says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what do those two verses have in common? Jesus says in Matthew, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Hebrew writer says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. What do you hear as commonality between those two verses? We hear the thought of holiness. Okay. Anything else? The path to see the Lord, the, the way to see the Lord. Okay. So we see a pathway to see God. Jesus says we see God. There's a pathway to see God. And that pathway involves purity, right? We see that as holiness. Okay. So purity and holiness are kind of like synonyms here. Jesus is using it one way. Jesus could have said, blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. But he chose to say, blessed are the pure in heart. The Hebrew writer could have said, uh, Pursue peace with all people and purity of heart without. So we see some he could have chosen. They say it a little differently, but they're basically saying the same thing. And that is, to see God, there is a pathway. And we must be in that pathway, and that pathway is one of purity. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 35, I believe, called it the highway of holiness find that a beautiful way to think of it, a highway of holiness. Now, in the, so we have to ask ourselves, just what is this pathway? What is this ability to see God? What are we talking about? What is this word holiness? So before we dive into the book of Acts here, I want to, I put some, I put several different Greek words on the board for you, because I think they're words we want to be familiar with. And the first one is hagios, and uh, then 
The second one is actually a version of that word, hagiosmos, just depending on how it, the verb is used. And then the next one is martaria. And then the final one is dunamis. We're going to come back to all three of those words, hagios, martaria, and dunamis, because they're very, very important words. And then the final, you see underneath dunamis, I should have put hagiosmos as kind of a subset of hagios. Uh, dinamis. Dinamin is a part of the word, a version of the word dunamis. Now, to tell, let me tell you a little story first that kind of introduces us to this whole thought. Why is any of this important? Sometimes Christianity is spread as a simple uh, faith that must be believed in order to gain something, uh, namely heaven, <laughs> or the thought of not going to hell. Listen to this. This is a story... There was a, an old uh, former uh, superintendent, I believe, uh, of the Church of the Nazarene, a former holiness preacher, and I, I believe he was a general superintendent, if I'm right about that. I forget now his exact title at one point. His name was J.G. Morrison. J.G. Morrison said that he was asked by a store clerk once this question. Preacher, how little religion can a person have and still get into heaven? <laughs> think about that. Let's just think. Let's just listen to that question for a minute. Preacher, how little religion can a man have and still get into heaven? What, what is that person asking? How much can I get by with? How can I get? How much can I get by with? Okay, very good. Do you hear anything else? Loaded question here. Um, Jump in. Not very fully committed. Doesn't sound fully committed. Trying to see what he can get by with. What was your thought? It's just a shallow, selfish motive. Mm. Selfish motive, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, J.G. Morrison thought about it for a while before he answered. Trying to take in the person and the thought. And, uh, and as I read that, I was really intrigued. I thought, well, how would I answer that if somebody asked me that? Because really, in reality, people are asking that all the time. New people that come to church are asking that. I wonder how many people, new people that come to church, you know, we're constantly evangelizing, constantly outreaching, constantly want to reach people for the gospel. I love, as Pastor Mark says, connecting people to Jesus. That's what we're here for. But I wonder, I just wonder how many of them, that's their central question. That's why they come in the beginning. Okay, I want, and, and, I, and I'm not going to fault them if that's their question in the beginning, because it's their entree to Christ. Okay, they're, they're thinking of God as judgmental. They're thinking of the concepts of heaven and hell, and they're thinking, okay, I don't want to go to hell. How much religion do I need? Just what is required of me to make it to heaven and not get into hell? That sort of negative connotation. I got a feeling there's a lot of people that begin that way. They begin the pathway that way. But what I want us to see in the process of this class on the spirit-filled life is that it's, it, isn't where, it isn't where we begin, it's where we end. One of the problems with our world today, I feel, is that we're stuck in what I like to call spiritual kindergarten. Spiritual kindergarten, or spiritual first grade, or maybe I should just say spiritual elementary school. Maybe that's a, giving people a little more credit for being on different rungs. Maybe there's some third graders mixed in here, fourth graders. You know what I'm saying? 
What I'm saying is, are we in the church really helping people find that highway to holiness, that pathway to purity, that relationship which Jesus says, without which we don't see God? Which the Hebrew writer said, without which we, we don't see God. Well, here's J.G. Morrison's answer. Here's what he told him. He said, just enough to make him or her comfortable in the presence of Jesus. After thinking about it for a while, he said, well, how about just enough, enough religion, in other words, just enough to make him feel comfortable in the presence of Jesus. That's a pretty interesting answer, I think. What is enough to feel comfortable in the presence of Jesus? Hmm. Wonder how, how, do we ever think about how we would feel in the presence of Jesus? That's where we're all headed. That's where we want to be, in the presence of Jesus. You certainly can't have anything that you're feeling convicted about. Well, if I, you're right. And, and the realities are, uh, being in, now he is the resurrected. He is the glorified Jesus. Okay, now when he walked the earth, often people didn't recognize him. He was a man. In fact, Isaiah said in his prophecies that he was a man. There was nothing of him that we should notice, really. Now, truly, some people in his presence, when they heard him speak, when they saw him act, they knew they were in the presence of God, and they were convicted greatly. Others walked right by him and never really noticed him. Some he spoke to and he preached to and he spoke miracles to and worked miracles, and they simply missed the whole thing. This is a sad reality. So, in the presence of Jesus who walked the earth before the cross is a difference. The man Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man Jesus of Nazareth, I think we can theologically certainly say that, is different than the presence of Jesus, the glorified Christ, the glorified risen Lord, crucified, resurrected, risen, glorified, whom we will be in the presence of one day. There's a difference. When we listen to the book of Revelation, one of the most interesting things about the end of the book, of the end of the book, that's the end of the whole story, the end of the big Bible, it says that nothing impure shall enter into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Wow. Heaven, that's a metaphor for heaven, the idea of being with Christ in eternity. Nothing impure shall enter there. So how much do we need to feel comfortable in Jesus' presence? Well, we need something of this top word here, hagios. What does this word mean? It literally means holy. The literal meaning of that word is holy. Now, hagiosmos, uh, holiness, or purification, or consecration how that word uh, comes out of the Greek into English. We need something of that word if we're going to be in the presence of the risen Lord. Because as the Hebrew writer says, without which, holiness, without which, no one shall see God. So what is this concept of holiness? Well, it has something to do with the Holy Spirit living within us. 
the spirit, what we call the spirit-filled life. And that's what we're in this class to discover. So my question number one on my, on my outline for you tonight to consider is, what is the spirit-filled life? And what is its purpose? Its purpose. We need... You said something earlier, uh, Sylvia, I think that, that I wanted to uh, come back to. You, you said something about not having a desire to know God. I think that's very well put. I think what we need, what, so what do we need to be holy? What do we need to be filled with the Spirit? Well, we begin with the thought that we need some kind of an honest desire to know God more fully. An honest desire to know God more fully. If it's an honest desire, then we're honestly doing something about it. We can't just say, oh, I want to know God, and then never spend any time with him. Or we can't just say, oh, I want to know God more fully. I want to know him, in, as Paul, the Apostle Paul says, oh, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Well, that's great. What are you doing about knowing? Well, hopefully we're reading the scripture. We're praying daily. We're, we're, we're worshiping daily. In our own heart, we're worshiping daily. We're finding a place for that relationship with the risen Christ every single day. Not just a set of beliefs that we've checked off. And one of those things we've checked off is, oh yeah, and I joined the church. Oh yeah, I was baptized. Oh yeah, I'm good to go. You know, I, Oh yeah, I've, I read my Bible every now and then. Oh yeah, I pray right before meals. You see, if, if we're reducing this relationship down to a set of check marks, we're missing the whole point. Now, let's look at the book of Acts, chapter 1, and let's see what it, how it introduces us to the Spirit-filled life. In this chapter, we read some things. We, we begin by reading the story as uh, Jesus would, would tell it. Luke is telling the story, of course. The writer of the Gospel of Luke is writing this account also. It's kind of like a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, if you will. And in this first chapter, it tells us that Jesus has already been resurrected. It's already been 40 days since his resurrection. And he has gathered all of his followers, his disciples, to the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet. And he is about to ascend back into heaven. And in that setting, he has some final words for his disciples. And so we pick up the story right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, quote, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, end quote. That was Jesus' very, John is, or Luke, I'm sorry, the writer here is quoting Jesus' words for us. Verse 6 now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That is the story of the ascension. And as a matter of fact, this Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is 10 days after the ascension. So that means the ascension was just a few days ago. We're in that we're in that Pentecost, we're in that waiting period. Right now as we begin this class, we're in the study time of when Jesus said, "Go back into Jerusalem and wait." So Imagine how they must feel. So now we pick up the story. Let's pick up the story a little further, okay? And verse 12, it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, And Judas, the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Okay, so get the picture. Who's in the upper room? The 11? Okay, Judas is missing, you notice. He's already gone. He's betrayed and died. So we have the 11. And Luke is telling us then they're also with the women. I think by that we can go back into the gospel and discern the ladies like Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, the mother of uh, uh, Cleopas, I think it was. So these other Marys and these ladies, Salome, these and Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary. Okay, these are the people that are there that have immediately gone back from the from the hillside, from Mount Olivet. And, you know, there well could be others there. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, we know there are 120 gathered by the time we get to that 10th day. The text doesn't tell us there's 120 there yet, but it's possible there's a good-sized crowd with them. But anyway, these are the core group of disciples. And it tells us that they are what? It says they are with one... Look at verse 14. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Now, let's continue the story. In those days, Peter stood up. We don't know if it's the first day, the second day, the third day. We know it's not the tenth day, because the tenth day is when the big Pentecostal experience happens. But in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So somewhere... Before the day of Pentecost, even, the number has grown to about 120. Probably no more than a few days into it, I think, because they've been in prayer. It says they're spending their time in prayer and supplication. First of all, I think we need to think about that for a minute. Did Peter, James, and John live in Jerusalem? No. In fact, Peter lived in his home. He has a wife and kids. His home is in Capernaum, right? And... 
here they are still in Jerusalem. They're, so the first thing we can say about them, the festival's over. You know, everybody came to Jerusalem for, uh, for the Passover, and then the crucifixion happened, and then the resurrection happened, and then Jesus is appearing to people all over. Now, it is right to say that it's almost Pentecost, and so by Pentecost they would have come back to Jerusalem had they gone home. We don't know for sure if they went home, although I think they went with Jesus all over back into Galilee because he appeared to many, it says over 500 people. Um, but they would have come back for Pentecost because Pentecost is one of those big three festivals in the Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith that they had to, males had to especially be, they had to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. Now, in that setting, they're here. Day one, day two, day three, day four, what they have not done is they haven't, I think the first thing we can say is they haven't given up. Did Jesus tell them it would be 10 days? No, he didn't. He said not many days from now. What, what Would we have waited 10 days? I asked myself, would I have waited 10 days? I, I'd like to believe I would, but I don't know. How many days does it take before you believe something's not going to happen that was supposed to be not many days? Not many sounds like three or four. Somehow we just want to put a three or four number, don't we? We just do. So first thing we can say is that they're certainly obedient. They're definitely obedient. They're still there. Ten days later, they're still there. In fact, they're still having prayer meetings, it tells us. In, when we get to chapter two, it says they're gathered in one accord. But before we get there, Peter stands up now in chapter one, and he begins to speak. He begins to call their attention to the business of the church, of the gathered assembly. It comes to Peter's mind that, you know, we should do something about this fact that Judas left and we have an office open here. And so they hold an election. Peter's showing his leadership capabilities here and he's not even, quote, been had his Pentecostal experience yet. But he's already showing good leadership qualities, isn't he? And so they go through an election and they have this election and Matthias is is elected. And Peter offers a small sermon there. He talks about, you know, we need someone who accompanied us the whole time. In verse 21, it says, he actually quotes scripture because in scripture it says, let another take his office. So verse 21, well, it needs to be somebody who's been with the Lord all this time. It needs to be somebody who was an eyewitness with us. And so beginning from the time of the baptism of John the Baptist to the day when he was taken up, it's got to be one of those. So it sounds like it's got to be one of the 120 in the room. And they cast lots, it says. They end up proposing two people, Joseph called Barsabbas and Justice called Matthias. And they prayed and they prayed and they gave it to the Lord and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. You know what is to happen in this. And so they cast lots, it said, I believe. Some different versions speak a little differently. It says, let's see what it says here. You know the hearts of all. This is verse 24. Uh, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by sin fell, that he might go to his own place, and they cast their lots. Verse 26. And they cast their lots. What is casting lots? Voting. Voting? Yeah. So they kind of somehow voted, drew straws. I don't know what they did. It doesn't. It's not too specific here. But there's a way in which they decided the victor. And the, it says that the lot fell to Matthias. 
So Matthias is the lucky winner, and Matthias is never heard from again. Don't know what that means for poor Matthias. <laughs> He's never heard from again, uh, interestingly enough. Tradition might have some more to say. Tradition probably has That'd some more to say. To look It'd be interesting to look into, wouldn't it? Matthias's role. Uh, because there is tradition about what each one of these apostles went on to do. Uh, but what I, what I want us to see here is in this setting, they were, why did they go to Jerusalem and why did they obey and why did they stay? They didn't know what was coming. They only knew what Jesus told them. And what did he do? What did he tell them? Remind me that you, you mentioned that they were there already because or they, or they would have come back. They would have come back. Pentecost, what does Pentecost have to do with the Jewish religion before Christ? I don't know that. Good question. Good question. Pentecost was, in the Jewish faith, a celebration of the giving of the law through Moses. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, it's a harvest, okay? okay? So it's always at the harvest time, and they celebrate it. They celebrate the harvest by bringing the first fruits in from the harvest. But it was at the time that they believe Moses gave, I mean, God gave the law to Moses. So after, after, the, after Passover, where they would have gone home and come back, if there, Possibly. Were, if there if, were no Jesus. Right. If there were no Jesus, they would have normally gone home and come, come back. back. Yeah. Um, but... With Jesus, my, my got a feeling with the resurrected Christ, they went wherever he went. Probably. We can't prove any of that. We don't know. But that's a great question. What's the Because there's a significant here. Yeah. Why Pentecost? Why did the Holy Spirit choose to come on Pentecost? Because it has everything to do with the fulfillment of the law. And it has everything to do with why we're going to be called the Spirit-filled life. Why we believe there's the filling of the Spirit. Because that is what enables us to keep the law. See, we're before... They could never keep the law. Now, so what did Jesus promise them? Why were they so willing to be obedient? Let's look into why Why were they so willing to be obedient for this? Jesus called it in verse 8 what? He said you will receive, in chapter 1, verse 8, he said you will receive the, does anybody remember? The promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. Now, those are words they would have remembered because Jesus had used those words. We read about them in the Gospel of John. Jesus would have used those words. The promise of the Father. He constantly told them, I'm going away, and when I do, the Father will send you. He called the paraclete, the comforter, you know, many names he used for the Holy Spirit that John teaches us in his Gospel. But this idea was, there is this anticipation they're probably remembering Jesus saying, you know, he said when he went away, he was going to send us the Holy Spirit. He was going to send us. I, I don't think they quite understood what all that meant. But they know something's coming. And Jesus just said in verse 8, let's read it again. Verse 8 is pretty important. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. So let's see if we can answer the first question. What is the Spirit-filled life? Because the answer to both, I asked two questions in number one. What is the Spirit-filled life? And what is its purpose? Both of those answers are in verse 8. Can you see it with me? What is the Spirit-filled life? It is the promise of the Father. So there's answer number one. The Spirit-filled life is the promise of God. It is the promise to his children that he will fill us and enable us to live in such a way that we can be his disciples. 
Look what all the things Jesus commanded. Jesus called everyone to a higher way, didn't he? Remember the woman, the woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus called her to a higher way, to go and sin no more. Jesus continually talked about rising above our sins. Well, how could they do that? No one had ever been able to do that. Only with the promise of the Father. They didn't understand it then, but they're about to understand it when they receive the promise. But that's the purpose of the Spirit-filled life, is so that we can receive the promise. It's the life God has promised us. The spirit-filled life is the life God promises his children. Let's think back to the question of J- that was asked of J.G. Morrison. How little of religion do I need, does a person need, to get into heaven? Well, is that person looking for the promise of the Father when we ask that question? Are we looking for a better life now? They're just looking to escape something that they believe is going to happen and just get in by the skin of their teeth. Jesus always called his followers to see the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within. The kingdom of God has come near. And we're about to see it come in its fullness in this Pentecostal experience. So, what is the spirit-filled life? It's, it's the promised life of God. It's restoration of Eden. How were Adam and Eve created? In fellowship with God. By their own free will, they chose to break that fellowship. They removed themselves from God's presence by their exercising their own will by being disobedient. But now, because of the sacrifice of Christ... Because Jesus Christ has conquered the the grave, because he has risen and ascended and is reigning in glory, and now sends the Holy Spirit, the life God promised in the beginning to his children has now come full circle. Now his children can re-enter that life. What is that life? It's the life of promise. It's a life of restoration in the very relationship with the Father, their Creator. balance of this class over the weeks this summer, we're going to learn what that life looks like. Okay? But I want to talk about one more, because it doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. Okay? It's not paradise completely restored. (laughs) That's what heaven will be. But it is paradise restored. There is the kingdom of God now that we are called to live in, that we are called to participate in, that we are called to help bring more and more into fruition as we grow in holiness. One of, the th- one of the things that I think is missing in the Christian evangel, the Christian message today, is the thought that as we grow in Christ and as we bring more people into the kingdom and as we begin to live the spirit-filled life, we are bringing heaven down. We are bringing the kingdom to fuller and fuller realization. We're not just occupiers waiting for the kingdom to come someday. We are, what's the word I want to use? We are uh, stewards of this manifestation of the kingdom. We're now stewards occupying the kingdom 
as a steward, not as just a waiting uh, participant, but really uh, manifesting it amongst us now. That's what um, that makes me think of in um, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov when Father Zosima's brother is dying and before he tells his brother that um, if if we would only change our hearts, you know, then it, it would be heaven on earth the next day. Yes. The kingdom, the kingdom would be here the next day. Yes. That is a beautiful... If you've never read the book... Oh, wow. What a great book by Dostoevsky. I, I, I get goosebumps when I think about this thought. What does it take to keep... To bring it... To bring in eternity... Now, Christ, only God knows. Only the Father knows the day for Christ's return. But the only thing keeping him is, is his mercy, number one. He tarries that more may know him. And two... Us, we are the roadblock. The more we, the more we become participants in the kingdom, the bigger the kingdom grows. So when we pray, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we understand what we're saying? What we should be understanding is that we are praying for his kingdom be, to be manifest in our life and in all of our lives collectively more and more every day. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Now, on earth as it is. Why did he say? He doesn't, Jesus didn't say, go and pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done when I come back again and then it'll all be okay. He didn't say to go pray that. It's not like we're praying for some day in the future. We're praying for today. Thy kingdom come on earth now as it is perfectly in heaven right now. In other words, bring heaven down. Now, when we can see that, now we begin to get a glimpse into that is the spirit-filled life. It is walking in the kingdom here and now. That is, it, it, this will change our whole dimension of what we see as worship. The act of worship, we're going to get into that as we grow and talk about a little further on our list tonight. Um, but, but So let me not get ahead of myself. But two things I told you are answered in, in chapter 1, I mean, chapter one, verse 8. What is the spiritual life? We've already talked about that. It's the promised life of God. It's the life of the kingdom here and now. And secondly, what is its purpose? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 8. What is the purpose of the spirit-filled life? What is the purpose of the promise of the Father? That you may receive power. There's the purpose. The purpose is the power of God displayed through us. We're his purpose. We are the fulfillment of the plan. Our transformed lives, our lives that have had a personal Pentecost that are now walking by the Spirit is the plan of God for the power to transform this earth. All that's needed for life to be better is for us to love each other. I mean, there's so many ways you could put it. Um, I think that's why I've always liked the lyrics to the song, Let There Be Peace on Earth. 
we don't sing that song. I've never sung that song in this church, but it used to be a favorite. It's a favorite in Catholic churches for some reason. They sing it all the time at the end of service. I, 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 it's just somewhere. I don't know why. It's not particularly a Catholic song, but it's just one of their favorites. But I like this thought. Let there be peace on earth. Let this be the moment now. With every breath I take, let this be my solemn vow. If I can remember all the words. To take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally. Something like that. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. All that's needed for this world to be better overnight is for three billion people who already say they're Christians to begin to live in this promise, in the power of this promise. We can't do it on our own. This is why the other Greek word here is dunamis. Dunamis. In this particular, this dunamis actually means power. Okay? Would be translated best in English as power. Now, in the Greek here, in this translation, it's Dinamine is the actual word used, and that's a translation of the verb that literally means acts of power. Okay? Not a, not a transitive thing of power, but literally an active living power. Now, what word can you easily see in the English language that comes from that? Dynamite. And dynamite isn't powerful unless it's lit. But when it's lit, it blows. Okay? If, as long as it's not lit, it's just an inanimate object laying there. And what I think the reason why that word is used, this trans, this part of the verb is used, I mean, it's a noun, but the way it's used here is because it's used to show the power that it needs to be used. We need to light this dynamite. Well, we can't light it ourselves. What does it take to light dynamite? Fire. Somewhere it's got to take fire. Strike a match, get some fire. It's got to take fire. It's got to take a spark, okay? And God's about to provide the spark. It's called Pentecost. And it's, a, it's, it's amazing. Okay, he's about to light the fire here. Uh, I don't know, I, I just got this funny, I just got the funny words of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire, for some reason in my mind there. We didn't start the fire. It's been always burning since the world's been turning, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy how my mind works sometimes. I, I get down these rabbit trails. God's about to light the fire. And, 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 and we're almost there to the beginning of chapter 2, and wow, is he going to light it. And I think in our own lives, every one of us can say that God's about to light the fire. All it takes is me doing what those first 120 did. Wait upon the Lord. Pray. Supplications. Ask the Lord for the power. Ask the Lord for the power of the Holy Spirit. We should seek the promise of the Father. We should seek the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the early church fathers of the Church of the Nazarene always preached about sanctification, seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit. We, that's our goal. That's where we want to be. We don't want to just get into Christianity by the bare minimum. What does it take to get into heaven by, you know, what's the least I can do? No, we want an honest attempt at living the life God has promised a life of love and peace and joy, a life of, of power. And, and So, my question to you, 
Pentecost comes, they obeyed, they were filled. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Is holiness optional? Is the filling of the power of God in our lives, is it optional? Remember the question of J.G. Morrison that was asked of him. What little bit can I do? What's the least I can do and still make it to heaven? Is holiness optional? Well, before we can answer that, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Let's look beyond the book of Acts. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And we know that Luke, of course, was a companion. The doctor Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. So Luke would have been very familiar with Paul's thoughts and way of thinking and writing. Luke, who wrote the, uh, the book of Acts, of course, um, taking me just a minute to turn there in my Bible because I didn't have the, the actual page marked. But if you're there, 1 Thessalonians, I'm at Timothy, so I'm getting close. There we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In chapter 4, we, we start reading. Paul is giving reminders about holiness, about living holy lives. Here's what he says in chapter 4. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, what is Paul saying in just two verses there? What does it sound? Does it sound like the life of the, the believer in Christ is a static life? Oh, once you believed you're in, that's all you need to do? No, it's not static at all. He's saying abound and abound more and more. And he says to them, as you know you should. He even uses those words. That tells us that that's the way the Christian message was taught. When people were discipled, they weren't discipled to just get in and escape hell. They were discipled to become more and more like Christ, which is holiness. Come back to our hagiosmos. Okay? So he goes on, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And there is in the Greek the word hagiosmos. The will of God is that you be holy, that you be filled with his Holy Spirit. That, and then he goes on to give some examples, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification, meaning your own body, in, in holiness and honor, in other words, and not in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in hagiosmos, in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? It is for us to grow and grow and grow. It is not a static relationship. And it's, it's, it, Paul is using the example here of sexual immorality. But that's just one amongst many sins. He could have used any examples. It was an example, obviously, the Thessalonians needed to hear. There must have been a reason why he had to write that to them. Okay, That was clearly a sin problem. Well, it doesn't take much to look around our world and see that's still a sin problem. Okay, But the point here is don't get bogged down on a list of sins. The point is... 
It's about overcoming all sin and growing and abounding more and more in holiness. So, according to Paul, doesn't look very optional, does it? It says, in fact, if we reject this impulse to grow in grace, we're not rejecting man. We're not just rejecting the church's message. We're rejecting God, is what he says. Wow, those are pretty powerful words. Okay, another one let's look at is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. That's just almost all the way to the back. Before Revelation, we get to... These books are so small, they, you turn one page and you miss the whole book. Right before 1 John, isn't it? 2 Peter, here we go. Chapter 3. Let's hear Peter. We heard from Paul. Let's hear from Peter. Okay, it's chapter 3. Let's look in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him, meaning Jesus, by him, meaning Jesus, in peace, without spot and blameless. Okay, now without spot and blameless is a synonym type way of talking about being holy, in other words, being pure. Okay, if you're without spot or blameless, now there's another synonym to being pure. And consider that long-suffering, consider that the long-suffering of the Lord Jesus is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. I find that funny. Peter had a hard time understanding Paul sometimes. Uh, which untaught and unstable people tend to twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, they know what? They know that they are supposed to understand and know that we're there to be living spotless and blameless. Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the errors of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Does it sound optional to Peter? Doesn't sound optional at all. I think we can safely say in the early church, it was not an option that one just slipped into heaven by doing the little bit they could. The idea of following Jesus Christ was pursuing the spirit-filled life. And we're going to see this more and more each week as the story builds. Because what we're going to see is the apostles out there spreading the gospel. And we're going to see how they run into different people that are believers but not filled. So it is possible to be a believer and not be filled. And we're going to see that. But for now, I want us to consider, we've talked about it, but let's look back at our notes here. What did the spirit-filled life look like in those first believers? I think we can find it if we look back at Acts chapter 2. He tells us just very well what it looks like. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. What did the spirit-filled life look like in those first believers? The day of Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost, we didn't read through that. We know that story. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit falls. Like I say, this isn't a survey through the book of Acts, uh, so I didn't have time to take you through that story, but you know the story of Pentecost. And after the story of Pentecost in chapter 2, everyone's receiving this gift of tongues. We're hearing all these languages. 
people are starting to hear what's going on from the streets. The streets are filled because everybody's there for the festival. And people are saying, those guys are drunk. How is this possible? Uneducated Jews are babbling up there. And, and they say, no, they're not. They're hearing. Another guy says, hey, but I'm hearing it in my language. All these real languages and tongues being spoken. Peter, we know, gets up to preach. And he preaches this amazing sermon about the fact that these men have obviously, these people, there's men and women there, been filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is a manifestation of the Spirit. And it was promised by the Messiah, whom you all, he says, you, in verses 22, he begins to talk about Jesus, and he says, whom you purposed to, uh, you know, to lead to the cross, uh, to kill, but even though he did many wonders and signs, and then as we go to the end of Peter's message there, we get down to verse 37, and the people respond, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now I want you, if, if you're writing in your Bible, and you, you don't mind writing, I think you should underline, because I think it's okay to do that. I think you should underline, in the name of Jesus Christ, because that's a very powerful thought that we will be exploring. In the name of Jesus Christ, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this promised spirit-filled life is somehow connected by gift of God to this act of becoming a follower of Christ Peter's even saying, in the act of being baptized, if we've made the decision for Christ and we're baptized right then, which is what they did, and we know the rest of the story, it says they went on and about 3,000 souls were added to the church that very day. They were, and they baptized them. Uh, they received a gift from the Holy Spirit. Somehow, Peter says there is a gift involved in this idea of being baptized. Now, I want you to hear the verses 42 through 47, and this will kind of frame some of uh, what I'm answering here in verse the middle of your page. What did the Spirit-filled life look like in the first believers? Verse 42 says this, And they, who is they? They is not only the 120, but now new Christians that have been added, new souls that have been added. It says, And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And so right there are four things. Now, I've identified three, and, and I'll look for the other. Th I'll give you those three in just a minute. But those are four things that kind of describe the life of the early Christian believer. They're, they're steadfastly making sure they listen to the doctrine of the apostles. That would mean the teachings, the things that the apostles are teaching them as doctrine. It's a very important thought there. And fellowship, meaning with others, the being together. That's very important. And then the breaking of bread. Here we see a sacramental sign. To break bread together was sacramental. To break the fellowship meal, the, the bread and the wine. And the, the Eucharist, in other words. And in prayers. All of those things uh, were the, the life of the early Christian. It says, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had a need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So not only did we have 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, even now, in these continuing days, God keeps continuing to add people who are being saved. But what I want you to hear in those five verses is three things. What did the Spirit-filled life look like in the first believers? Well, I think, number one, we saw it when it says it's, it's a sense of awe. The first believers had a sense of awe in living the Spirit-filled life. It says here, uh, they continued. It says, then fear came upon every soul. And the fear, the word fear there is used to mean awe, a sense of greatness, a sense of amazement at this incredible gift they've received and this incredible life they're now living. So there was a sense of awe in the life of the Spirit-filled believer. Two, there was a sense of togetherness, of fellowship, of unity. They, it says they were together. They continued in fellowship. They continued together from house to house. They went around together from house to house. I mean, can you imagine? There's now more than 3,000 people that belong to this movement in Jerusalem. Where are they all meeting? They couldn't use the temple. <laughs> so they're moving from house to house. There's an awful lot of house churches happening here that are, that are you know... And you can imagine the apostles going, well, I'll go to this one this time and that one. That What amazing time that would have been. Wow. Wouldn't you have loved to have been alive for one of those house church meetings? And, and it says then, the third thing I want you to see is that it was a daily life of faith. The spirit-filled life of the early Christian believer in the book of Acts was daily. And it makes the point here. Luke makes that point over and over and continuing daily with one accord. So with unity and with purpose, they lived their life daily. There was no, well, see you next week on Sunday. <laughs> there was no, well, we'll see you. In a, you know, the idea was they had unity and they had fellowship. Now, I want to explore that for a minute here. I asked the question on the notes. Was this life experienced, was this life of the early Christian the early spirit-filled Christian. Was this life experienced individually or corporately? Was it experienced individually or corporately? It might seem like a trick question. It's certainly both. Certainly no one can deny that you had to have an individual experience. But what I think cannot be denied, but I think what is often missed, is the power of the corporate fellowship here. And if they did this daily, which they apparently did, how did they continue to make a living? That's a great question. Maybe they did it after work. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You know, it was an agrarian, a lot of it was an agrarian lifestyle. Not everyone had a farmer. The idea of going to work was certainly different in those days. But that's an amazing question that I think deserves the thought that somehow they found time to yes. do it. But yet in our daily life, we can barely find time to read five minutes of Scripture. Oh, what God must be thinking of us. With all of our luxuries, yet we don't have the time. That's uh, Corbin read a book recently by uh, Matthew Kelly, who's a Catholic evangelist, lay evangelist, and he's an Australian, and he's kind of funny. <laughs> and I love when he says that he's famous for saying this. He says, 
When you get to heaven, how are you going to tell God you don't have time to read his book? That's trying me trying to be Australian. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. But it's a good act. I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. How are you going to tell God you didn't have time to read his book? All these conveniences we have save us time, yeah. And they found time to meet daily. Wow. To find fellowship daily. To praise one another. To praise God, I mean, to fellowship with one another. To break bread with one another. Sounds like they couldn't wait to get together. They couldn't wait to get together. So, so what is the spirit-filled life? What did it look like to early Christians? It was all-encompassing. It wasn't just a, wow, is it 7.38 already? I've run over by eight minutes. I'm sorry. I'm having so much fun up here. I'm way over. I'm not going to get to the last, but the last question is about, I had you underline that thought about the name of Jesus. We're going to pick up next week, and we're going to talk about what is the source of this miraculous life. We'll get into Acts chapter 3 as we do that. So for now, let's close with this thought. I'm so sorry I ran late on you. I want you to to hear something. If I could capsulize all of this tonight, it's this idea that the spirit-filled life is just that. it, It is life. It isn't a set of beliefs. It isn't a doctrine or a dogma. It's a life to be lived. What life? The life of Jesus Christ that we mystically and miraculously participate in. That's a phrase we'll come back to a lot. I'll come back to that a lot as we go through this class. The life, the spirit-filled life, is the life of Jesus Christ that we mystically and mysteriously, however I said that, we live in it. Yeah, mysteriously and miraculously. Okay. Now, I didn't get to one Greek word on the board, and that was martyria. Okay? Martyria means witness. And this was the purpose Part of the purpose, okay, when I said to you, what was the, uh, uh, when I said to you, what is its purpose? What is its purpose? That we may receive power, but what good is the power if we don't, what do we do with the power? Okay, I should have jumped into this word, but I got sidetracked and went on. Remember verse 8, chapter 1. And you shall receive power, not many days from now, so that you may be my martyria, my witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? It means to be a martyr. To be willing to live the life of Christ in such a way that all will see it and all will know it, even if it costs you everything. That's a witness. A witness, you know, we use that word a lot. We think of courtrooms. We think of somebody who's bearing witness. But even at that, to go up there and say, you know, I'm going to tell the truth, so help me God, whatever it is they, they, they have you say, and you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're saying, I'm going to do this no matter what it costs. And, of course, we know the early context of this word was that it cost them everything. It cost them their life. Because they were not well received by the Jewish temple. In fact, they were quite persecuted, as we'll see as we go on in this class, what the early spiritual life was like. So, for now, let's close with that thought. Uh, Thank you for your time tonight. It's been so fun to get this class kicked off. If you had fun here, share it with somebody and invite them to come next week. Let's close in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for the opportunity to look deep into your word, to ask deep questions of what it means to live this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit in this life. So guide and teach us. Look over anything that I say. Cover over it if anything I've said is wrong. And do not let anyone be led astray. But guide and direct us in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.